the sky is falling. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, right? You may even know it was Chicken Little who went around saying it because he was sure the world was coming to an end. You may not know, however, that it was a European folk tale called Henny Penny, the story which in an oral tradition may go back 2,500 years that, that gave us Chicken Little. Well, some people, I think, when they read the prophets of the Old Testament, feel like they're reading the biblical version of Chicken Little, right? That, that the sky is falling seems to be all they're saying. Well, sometimes the prophets do speak of the end of days when indeed the sky will be falling, right? But the Old Testament prophets are, are much more than Old Testament Jewish Chicken Littles. Uh, the Old Testament prophets are men called by God to go to the people of God and to go to the pagan nations and take the word of God to them so that they might turn from their sins and be rescued from the day when the sky will be falling. And the message often comes as a warning. It often comes with a warning saying, you are in sin and if you do not repent, wrath is coming. You will suffer. Sometimes it's a promise of immediate judgment. God's going to send armies to defeat you. Sometimes it's the promise of eternal judgment. But it almost always it comes with a hope, a word of hope that God will redeem his people. Well, we are going to start a series in one of the prophets. We are going to look at the book of Amos. Eric warned you, I think, last week that we were going to be in the book of Amos. Before we jump into Amos, though, I think we need to set the context you know, the Old Testament covers millennia. And so it's important to know what part of that history you're in. And, and we want to understand Amos. We want to understand his audience. We want to understand his time. And the fact is, we only know what Amos tells us about Amos. It just doesn't show up anywhere else. Um, what we know is that Amos prophesied some 760 years before Christ. And it's hard for us to grasp 760 years before Christ, but just, you know, I mean, you think about how old our nation is, it's not even anywhere near that. But that long ago, that long before the coming of Jesus, we also know, and go ahead, put the map up there. There you go. You know we're, we're in the Old Testament. I got a map. It's about 760 B.C., and we know Amos was from Tekoa. So Tekoa is that, that small town, and it's about maybe 5 to 10 miles south of Jerusalem, and then maybe another 10 miles up to Bethel. But that little red line, which I didn't make thick enough, is the boundary between the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. So Tekoa is, you know, at most 20 miles to Bethel, but it crosses a national border. And we know that Amos was there in Tekoa, and he was in agribusiness is what Amos did. He calls himself a shepherd, but the word he uses for shepherd means someone who oversaw shepherding. So he was likely either the owner or at least the, the supervisor of a, a large sheep operation. He also talks about how the, he managed livestock in the book. So that's other than sheep. So he also managed livestock. And he also talks about raising figs. Now, maybe he did that as a cash crop, or maybe he did that on the side, but nothing else. We know this. Amos was an agricultural businessman of sorts from the southern kingdom of Judah 
about 760 years before the coming of Christ. And we know that Amos is sent to prophesy over the border. He's sent up north, and he goes, at least we know, to Bethel. He's sent to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, why did God send this agribusinessman to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel? Well, we don't know. Maybe he had some business connections up north. Maybe that was it. I mean, it was only about, like I said, 20 miles across the border. But, we, but, but that's what we've got. We've got a picture of Amos, who's a layman. He's not, not a priest. From the southern kingdom of Judah, sent to the northern kingdom of Israel with the word from God. Amos does prophesy about some other nations, too. That's what we'll look at next week. But the main focus is a word to the northern kingdom of Israel. And since I've been saying Judah and Israel, I think it's also important we talk about why I'm saying Judah and Israel. Well, what's the relationship between these two countries? Now, you, you've read your Old Testament, I hope. If not, read your Old Testament. But if you have, you, you've come across the time in the Old Testament when, when God called this man, called Abram. And he calls Abram out of the pagan land, really, of the Babylonians. And he calls him and makes a covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a whole lot of kids. I'm going to have kingdoms come from you. And I'm going to give you this land. And I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through you. And that's a promise he makes. Then he makes that promise to Abram's son, to Isaac. And he makes that promise to Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. So the great nation that comes from the line of Abraham is the nation of Israel. And this is where it's going to get confusing. All right? You know, you know the story of Israel, right? Israel, they end up down in Egypt. God delivers them from Egypt. God gives them instructions on how to live as his people in his presence in the promised land through Moses, the Ten Commandments and the law through Moses. God, God gives them a king because they really want a king. They go through a bad one, but then they get David. He's a great king. And he makes, God makes a covenant with David. He says, you know, you're, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be a great king. In fact, I'm going to have a king of your offspring, of your line, who will rule on the throne over my people forever and ever. So, I mean, there's great promises to this nation of Israel but it all went bad right after David. Solomon's messed up, and so it's not surprising Solomon's boys are even more messed up, and the kingdom splits in two. Right? So you have Israel, and then all of a sudden it splits in two, and you have the northern kingdom, which is still called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. But these are both made of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, these are both the covenant people of God, Israel and Judah. You got a guy named Rehoboam ruling in the south called Judah. That's mainly the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And then you got this other guy who's not a son of Solomon. Jeroboam rules the northern kingdom, and he's got essentially the other ten tribes. Judah, the southern kingdom, has some ups and downs, mostly downs. Israel, the northern kingdom, doesn't have any ups. 
I mean, they start off on the wrong foot and they just get worse gradually after that. And Israel and Judah, though they're both of the line of Abraham, of the covenant people of God, they don't get along at all. They do everything they can to not get along. So at the time of Amos, you have this really defined boundary between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they don't get along, but God takes Amos from his agricultural business in the south and sends him north with a word from God to Israel. And with that in mind, uh, and we're going to just look at a couple verses, I am going to ask you to stand again. We'll be reading Amos chapter 1, just verses 1 and 2. God's word says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to us this morning. God, this ancient word that you gave to Amos, may it be a word to us. May it be the word we need in order to live lives that glorify you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. So, in this introduction to Amos, what we're going to do is we're going to get a glimpse. We're going to get a glimpse at four topics that are going to come up as big deal in the book of Amos. Four topics to come in this book. And the first topic of importance in the introduction to Amos is the topic of calling. The topic of calling. God calls whom God wills to accomplish his work among his people. God calls whom God wills to accomplish his work among his people. If you look at verse 1, these are the words of Amos, who was a shepherd of Tekoa, words that he saw, so God gave him a vision to take to Israel in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah and Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel, right before the earthquake. So Amos is not a religious professional. Amos is from Judah, not Israel. Common sense says Amos is not the right guy for this job, right? I mean, if you're posting job description, prophet to go to Israel, you're going to get an Israelite because, well, Israel people listen to Israel people. And you're going to get somebody with religious training because when they come and say, hey, this is a word from God, well, they've already got the cred, right? They, they've got the credentials to say, I speak for God. But, but God calls Amos. God calls Amos. And he's going to speak to Israel about their messed up religion and the rampant injustice in Israel. So he's not coming saying, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's coming to say, God's looked at you, and you are a mess, and he's going to judge you. And God calls a guy who's from another country, who's not even a religious guy, a professional. 
Yeah, like I said, maybe he's got business connections, but think about it. If you're coming with a message about a bad religion and injustice, who do you need to talk to? He's going to have to go to a kingdom and talk to a king. When you go to rebuke injustice, you're going to address rulers who are either being bad themselves or are letting bad stuff happen. In the 8th century before Christ, in a kingdom, that means you're going to need to get the ear of the king. We have no reason to think that Amos had any connections with Uzziah, the king of the south, let alone the king of the north. But God calls Amos to go speak about injustice. And God's going to call Amos to, to speak about the fact that their worship was all messed up in the northern kingdom. Again, may, maybe he's got business connections, but man, we're talking about a nation with an established religion and a formal priesthood that's got an org chart. They're not just a bunch of religious free-for-all folks. I mean, think about our situation, right? We're what's called a free church. That means the government does not rule our church. That's what a free church is. The government has no say in how we worship the Lord. We're also a, an anonymous, anonymous, that's cute, autonomous, it actually says that in my notes, autonomous local church. That means as a church, we don't even have a denomination that can tell us what to do and how to worship, right? In the 8th century BC, there is nothing anyone knows anywhere about a free religion or an autonomous religion. There might be a few anonymous ones. No autonomous religions. Nothing like that. <laughs> God created a religion in the books of Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God created a religion. And it had priests, and it had temples, and it involved the king. Even in the priesthood, there was rank, right? He's not called the high priest because he's taller. There, there's rank in the priesthood. And we have no reason to think Amos had a connection to the priesthood other than, you know, maybe he sold sheep to Levites for sacrifices. Maybe he was a faithful attendee at the temple. But, but he, he doesn't have a place in that pecking order. And even if he did, that would not have mattered in Israel. Because you know what one of the first things the northern kingdom did when it became a northern kingdom? It created its own religion. It put temples in the towns of Bethel to the south and Dan to the north, set up little golden cows in the temple, created its own priesthood, and started worshiping in its own religion. So even if Amos is connected to the religion of Judah, he's got no voice in the religion of Israel. But God calls whom God calls to take his word where it needs to go. He chose Abram. Abram was of the family of Babylonian idol worshipers. He chose Moses. When he chose Moses, Moses was a murderer on the run. He chose David. David was not even on his dad's own list of possible candidates to be king. Right? God chose Paul while Paul's out persecuting the church. God chose some fishermen 
to be the ones who would start the church. Fishermen. And Amos reminds us that God calls whom God calls, and then God equips them, and God sends them. And this is true for the church just like it was for Israel. In fact, Christians, we know that God actually calls every one of us. Don't we? Don't we? He calls us in what we call a great commission. He calls every one of his followers to go out and make more followers of Christ. He calls whom he calls, however, to specific tasks in that commission. Which means you can't sit there this morning saying, I have these talents, I have these skills, I have this past, I have this resume, so these are the only places God would ever call me. Because God calls whom God calls because he is God. So stand by, because he may be calling you, right? So that's the first thing we see in the introduction to Amos is calling. The second topic that's really important in Amos is perspective. It's perspective. And the perspective in Amos is this. Prosperity is not the same thing as a reward from God. Prosperity is not the same thing as a reward from God. We read that in Psalm 73. You couldn't have a better psalm for that. But if you look at verse 1, Amos is prophesying during the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam. And, 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 I mean, now if you read the book of Amos and all the, the injustice he talks about and the idolatry, you might think things must be going pretty bad in Judah and Israel. Must be pretty tough. Israel must be a hard place to live. But the reality is this. Jeroboam, and this is Jeroboam II, for those of you who might be confused with the other Jeroboam, which, you know, unless you're really good at Bible trivia, I don't think you probably were, but the, this is the second king named Jeroboam. Jeroboam is checking all the boxes of political success. He's getting it right. Jeroboam has restored the national borders to what they were during King Solomon. The, Israel had just been losing ground and losing ground and losing ground. Jeroboam has restored all the borders. There's peace between Israel and Judah. There's hardly ever peace between Israel and Judah. Syria. Syria is the biggest pagan national threat to Israel. And it had been pretty bad. But Syria has just been conquered by Assyria. And that's one of those Bible things that gets you confused too. Syria is the one that's first and closest. Assyria is the big nasty one that comes later. And Assyria, though, had just conquered Syria. So Syria is not a challenge to Israel. So they're comfortable. And you think, well, well what about Assyria? Might they be a problem? Well, guess what? Assyria's got other problems. They got a bunch of other countries that are having little revolutions and civil wars, and they got too much to deal with. They're not thinking about Israel either. And, and, and the economy's good for Jeroboam. Amos is going to tell us that. The economy's going well. So political power, the economy's going well, and Jeroboam is on the throne by the time of Amos for 30 years. He's been able to rule for 30 years. And things are going great. The money, the military. In, 
CNN and Fox News would both declare this guy a winner. And you know that doesn't happen often. Right? The days of Jeroboam are, are relative, days of relative peace and financial prosperity in Israel. So you have to imagine that the people of Israel are thinking, you know, things are going so good, God must be pretty happy with us. I mean, he's just blessing his good people. And that is what we call prosperity gospel thinking. Prosperity gospel thinking. When you believe the equation says, God is pleased with me, I know that because I'm doing so well. I am prosperous. And prosperity gospel thinking has always been a temptation to God's covenant community, even in the Old Testament, especially today. Today, if your church is, is active and it's growing, God must think we're pretty good. Today, if your family is healthy, God must think we're a pretty good family. Today, if your nation is wealthy and free of wars, God must think we're a pretty good nation. The problem is, prosperity gospel thinking, according to the Bible, is a lie. It is a lie. Prosperity is always a gift from God. Right? Any good thing is a gift from God, but it is always a gift. It is not a payment for your righteousness. God is not just rewarding your goodness with prosperity. There are many, Psalm 73, there are many rich, wealthy, sinful, wicked people. Prosperity is always a gift from God, and prosperity gospel thinking ignores common grace. Common grace. God shows grace and mercy on everyone. Everyone who is alive and breathing today took their first breath this morning because it was a gift of God's grace. God makes the rain that falls, that makes the crops grow on fields of sinners and saints alike. And prosperity gospel thinking ignores common grace. And prosperity instead of a reward, in the Bible is often used as a test to God's people. Prosperity often comes as a test. God gives his people prosperity to find out whether they love prosperity or the God who gave the gift. We have to understand prosperity is not the same as a reward from God for righteous behavior. God's judgment can and often does fall during times of prosperity. Israel was prosperous, but 2 Kings chapter 14 tells us of Jeroboam that he did evil in the sight of God. The summary of his king, his rule, he did evil in the eyes of God. Israel was knee-deep in idolatry, Injustice everywhere, yet they were prosperous. And God sent Amos to tell them about it. So let's not let the prosperity 
that the world values so much and the world looks at as a measure of, of whether you are good or whether you are right, let's not, that be, not let that be our measure of God's evaluation of us because it's a false one. We live in prosperous days. Even if our prosperity seems to be waning a bit, it's only because there was a lot of it to wane. As American Christians, we are some of the most wealthy and persecution-free Christians that have ever lived on the face of the earth. Does that mean God is pleased with the church in our land in our day? Is he pleased that our churches are shrinking? Is he pleased that we lead fewer and fewer people to faith in Christ year after year? Is he pleased that COVID craziness drove an average of 25% of church attendees to quit going to church? Amos reminds us, God's judgment can and often does come to God's people during days of prosperity. So the first two topics in the introduction to Amos that are important for us to see are calling and perspective. The third topic of importance in Amos is that of authority. Is that of authority. God is the one who defines right worship and right living. God is the one who defines right worship and right living. Amos' basic message to Israel is there in verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. The top of Carmel withers. The first two lines are a declaration of authority. Yahweh roars from Zion. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is roaring like a lion. Do you know when a lion roars? A lion roars to mark his ownership of a territory. That's when a lion roars. And God gave Amos in a vision to take to Israel, and God is roaring to Israel, you are mine. I am over you. I am your God and king. And he roars from Zion and Jerusalem. Israel thought they could redefine God's religion. They said God will be a God in Dan and Bethel. God will be a God who does things our way, follows our religion. God, God will be this God. He won't be the God in Jerusalem. He won't be the God in Zion. Well, God is roaring from Jerusalem. God is roaring from Zion to Israel. Because God says, this is where I said I will dwell with my people. Here, I define the center of worship. I define how you relate to me, even where you relate to me. And God roars across the border at Israel because God is the one who defines right worship and right living. When God gave the Ten Commandments, how did he start the conversation? He said, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He started with a declaration of authority. I am Yahweh, your God. And Amos uses the imagery of a roaring lion to remind Israel, God is still your God. You don't get to reimagine him. You don't get to reimagine his worship. You don't get to reimagine his ways. 
When God commissioned you, you, us, in the New Testament, to be his people going out with his word, how did God start that commission? Do you remember? Jesus comes and he says to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. The first thing he says in the Great Commission, he makes a declaration of authority. God comes to us and says, I am your God over you. You need to make other people recognize I am God over them. That's the Great Commission. God is God. We don't get to reimagine him. We don't get to reimagine his worship. We don't get to reimagine his ways. So the first three topics in the, this introduction to Amos, they're going to be important as we study this book. Calling, perspective, and authority. And the fourth and final one we're going to look at, this topic of importance in Amos. There are more topics in Amos, but these are the ones that show up here. Is consequence. Consequence. Ignoring God's authority results in God's judgment. There is a consequence to ignoring God's authority. We also see that in verse 2. As God roars from Zion and Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Israel has forgotten God and forgotten his authority over them, and the message, Yahweh roars northward, starts off by saying, the pastures of the shepherds mourn. It's a very Amos-y picture, right? Amos is a shepherd. And the first result of God's territorial claim over Israel, that Amos says God is roaring at Israel, is that the meadows where the sheep would normally graze are going to hold a funeral service. I mean, it's going to be like prosperity, lots of sheep grazing in this nice green pasture, and that's going to turn into the place of grieving, the place of a funeral, a place of life becomes a place of death. Also, when Yahweh roars northward to Israel, the top of Carmel withers. Carmel is a mountain just in, up toward the northern part of Israel. It's not just going to be grief in the meadow where the sheep are. God's claim on Israel is going to be seen on Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel is normally a land that's rich in vineyards and orchards. And what's going to happen there on Carmel is all of this rich produce is just going to wither and die. Life transformed to death. God still owns his covenant people Israel. They rebelled against him. They denied his authority. And God's judgment will fall. The consequence for ignoring God will be death and grief. When God's people ignore God's authority, there will be judgment. And be clear, God is speaking to his covenant people here. He will speak to the pagan nations, but this is to Israel. Think about the Ten Commandments again. God declared his authority in the preamble to the Ten Commandments. But what are the first commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall use no images for the sake of worship. So don't have another God. Don't try to redefine God in your worship. Don't misuse God's name. Don't think you can speak of your God however you want. Don't misuse God's day. 
the Sabbath day. Respect the weekly rhythm that points you to God and who He is as your Creator over you. When God gave His people these instructions for how they should live as His people, the first four commandments are all about putting every part of your life under the authority of God. Your worship, your words, and your calendar all need to reflect the fact that you bow your knee to the Almighty God. God demands that we live out a big God theology. And if we, as His people, do not do that, if we go the way of Israel and we do not live out a big God theology, then there will be judgment on God's people today. God is still God. This has not changed. He still wants His people to bow the knee to Him. God remains unwilling to turn a blind eye toward rebellion in His covenant community. How are we doing? Well, I mean, let's just ask our question. Does our worship always reflect that God is in authority over us? Does, do our words always reflect that God is in authority over us? Does our calendar reflect that God is in authority over us? Or does God just get a little bit now and then? Does God just get lip service when we think we're supposed to be giving God lip service? Let, let, I mean, let, let's be honest and open here. If we really think about the, the total, honestly, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that is packaged in those first four commandments, then we've got to say that, that it's time for godly sorrow and repentance to come to the house of God that judgment may not. Four key issues here in the introduction of Amos. Calling. God calls whom God wills to take his word where God wants it to go. God calls his people as he wills. And perspective. Prosperity is not the same thing as blessing from God. All prosperity is a blessing from God, but it's not a reward from God. Authority. God is the one who defines right worship and right living. And consequence. If we ignore God's authority, God will judge his people. It, I believe it's going to be very good for us to go through the book of Amos. And I don't believe, by the way, that the book of Amos is a downer. I believe that, that, that it, it's a downer as in when you're going the wrong way against traffic on a one-way street and you see the sign that says, turn around, you're going the wrong way. Well, that's kind of a downer if you wanted to go the wrong way on a wrong-way street. But not hitting cars is kind of a bonus. Right? That's the book of Amos. The book of Amos for us can be a call to get us going the right direction that God would have us be going. I think it's going to be good for us. I, I think it's time for us to remember our calling as the people of God. We're not just called to be the people of God on Sundays. or just called to be the people of God if there's a special scheduled event that's going to get us out there on a mission trip or something or a special service or something. We are called to be the people of God at all times, and He has placed you where He has placed you in your life so that you can proclaim the good news that Jesus saves to those around you. 
I mean, if you're not called to go to the far ends of the earth and reach the unreached people groups, if you're called to stay here, it's because there are people that God want you to proclaim the good news to here. The good news that starts with, you are a sinner under the wrath of God and you need a savior. It's time for us to remember our calling. It's also time for us to set aside the false prosperity gospel perspective that blinds us to our sin and to remember that God demands that all of our lives reflect his authority over us. The, 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 the balance in your checkbook is not God's declaration of his pleasure with your obedience to him. Maybe, maybe you are righteous and God is giving you much so that you can use much to glorify him and you use that great. But do not make prosperity in this life a measure of your walk with the Lord. It's also time for us to repent of any rebellion against his authority so that we can be forgiven and be healed. As we look at Amos, I think we'll be challenged at times. I think God will confront us in our sin. But he always does that, church. He always does that with a 1 John 1, 9 offering in his hands to you. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The cross is always there when the conviction of sin arises. There's always Jesus for you if you'll turn from that sin and be forgiven. It's a promise. You know, as we look at the world around us, as we as we look at what's going on in, in our church and, and in the churches around us, I, I think it would be easy to, to say that, that perhaps God's judgment is falling upon the people of God. Uh, I, I'm not going to go all Pat Robertson on you. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think you can take this event and tie this to this judgment of God. and I, I, I've not... I don't know, I don't have any dreams and visions that I should share with you. But I, but I can say this, that perhaps the book of Amos might be the best book for us in our day. That, that we became a little complacent in prosperity. That we figured it was enough to give God what little we gave him, that if we, if we just kind of redefined what he wanted to, to fit our, our culture, that would be okay with God. That, that if we, it, God surely recognizes we're really busy with all this other stuff in the world, that, you know, how could we, we can't fit. That, uh, maybe what we're seeing in church decline is God giving us what we've been asking for? I don't know, but, but I do know this. We are here today, this morning. And today, this morning, we can trust in God. We can commit ourselves to follow Him. We can give ourselves over 
to this great king and lord and know that there's forgiveness, that, that there is hope. And, and so as we study Amos, I, I, I want us to do this, and hopefully I'll bring us back to this often enough. I want us to remember we're looking at Amos's word to Israel about the way God was going to judge them because of their idolatry and injustice. And we look back at that. And Assyria got strong again. They got, took care of their business with those other nations. And Assyria swooped in within, I think, 40 years of Amos's prophecy. And Israel was gone forever. But we're not Israel. We're here this morning as the church. And church, there is forgiveness for sin for you right now, every day. We can repent. We can be forgiven. And we can go forward in the joy of the Lord. It is right there before us. It is ours for the taking in Christ. So as we look at Amos, we will look at a... At a at a dark word toward a wicked people. But we will look at it with eyes of the church, understanding that if it reveals my sin, God has done that as an act of grace so that I might repent of that sin and be forgiven and know the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because it is true. We thank you because it is a good reminder to us of who you are and who we need to be in response. So Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us hear your word, help us believe it, and help us respond to it in a way that is good for us and glorifies you. Lord, if there is one here this morning who has never known forgiveness for their sin, never turned to Christ, never repented, turned from their sin, received forgiveness because of the work of Christ on the cross. Lord, today I pray that they would see their need for forgiveness, that they would repent, believe, and be saved. But Lord, for, for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I, I pray that we would see this word from this prophet and we would take it to heart, being open to following you wherever you might call us to take the word. Standing against the, the, the false prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in, in so many religious circles today. Bowing our knee to you as the one authority over us. And God recognizing where we have sinned and fallen short and repenting and being forgiven. Help us, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Tom's going to come lead us in our closing hymn. And as he does that, I would just ask that you deal with God's Word in your life. I, I don't know where He's working in your life. If there's something you need us to pray for, Come forward, I'd be glad to pray with you today, and if you want the church to pray for you, we get the church to pray for you. Maybe today is the day you need to say, look, I have tried it on my own, tried to be righteous on my own, it's not working, I need forgiven. 
You need to place your faith in Christ today and be saved. Do that today and come share that with us so that we might rejoice with you. Or, or maybe where you are as we sing, you just need to turn some things over to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I need you to make this right in me. Whatever the case is, I'd ask you to deal with God this morning. Deal with his word. Please stand.